Hello everyone and welcome to the FFS Show, a podcast about misinformation and fact-checking by the facts. I am one of your sparkly hosts, Ali Bryan, and with me is an equally luminescent host, Sam Gonzalez. How are you doing? I'm good, dude. Just have a dictionary open now for, for <laughs> introductions every week. <laughs> yeah. Adjectives yeah, to, do, call, yeah. to call ourselves, yeah. Happy, <laughs> yeah. happy Valentine's Day two days ago. Oh, yeah, um, Valentine's Day almost. Oh, almost. Uh, what a season to to do some fact checks and to yeah, look at misinformation. So yeah. Hopefully this we've got a, a lovely Valentine's present for you, slightly late, um, in the right. form of a wonderful podcast featuring a great interview. Would you like to tell us what that is? Reveal the present. We did an interview with Andrew Dudfield from Full Fact. Mm. Um, another uh, fact-checking organization based in the UK. He's their um, head of automated fact-checking. So his kind of main focus is how to use AI tools and technology to help the work of fact-checkers and also how to make sure they identify uh, claims. So they've been doing some really interesting stuff with their uh, automated fact-checking. And uh, if you go to their website, which is fullfact.org, uh, then you'll be able to find out more information about the automated fact-checking all the kind of work they've been doing. But before we get into our conversation with Andrew, um, we had a fact-check last week. Ali, do you want to tell me a little bit more about what claim we were checking? Yeah, so you, if you've been following Scottish politics at all over the last couple of weeks, you will maybe have heard of the ongoing controversy around the Scottish independence and pensions. So right. we were looking at a claim uh, by Ian Blackbird, where he was talking about who would be paying for Scottish pensions after independence. Yes, and actually something to mention about this particular claim is that since we since the podcast came back a couple of weeks ago, we yeah. put out a call for people to submit any any statements, any claims that they wanted us to fact check, either on the podcast or on on kind of pieces on the website. And this was a result of a submission by Aiden. So here's a here's a shout out. If you have anything that you like us to fact check, uh, it may end up on the podcast or it may end up as something on the website. You can find a little form that you can submit your idea into on check my fact dot paperform.co tell me a little bit about the context of the statement that was made by ian blackford and the claim in which we are back checking which is specifically uh that the in 2014 as in just before the independence referendum the chief secretary of the treasury made it clear that the uk retained an obligation to pay pensions to those who had paid national insurance after independence right he, this was initially seemed to be said on a Scottish independence podcast at the end of last year that didn't get a huge amount of like reach or didn't what didn't kind of figure that much in the conversation. It was then amplified by a few people on Twitter who were questioning whether or not this was true. Um, and right. he then repeated it in an interview on ITV Border. So it started to get bigger, bigger reach. And uh, that's basically where we came in to try and fact check it. Now, is it worth going into a little bit of how state pensions work now so that we can understand 
what what was being kind of suggested out here? What was being hinted at? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I think well, the current situation is that everyone in the UK who pays international insurance is entitled to some some level of state pension when they retire. Mm-hmm. Uh, this really depends on your contributions, how many how many years you paid into the system. So you basically you you kind of build up an entitlement through mm-hmm. your contributions, but. What a lot of people think misunderstand is that sort of like that there's a there's a sort of pot that you have paid into that right. you can then draw from. That's not really how it works with pensions. So pension all state pensions are paid through current taxation and borrowing. So I mean you you can so the, the government changes the qualifying factors, the amount you can get. So it's not like there's a big massive pile of money or even like figuratively money that you can yeah. then draw from, which I think is really important with reference to this claim because. Essentially, what Ian Blackford is saying is that people who have paid into the system in the UK uh-huh. have a sort of inalienable right to get their money from that pot. Right. Whereas should the situation change in terms of uh, the constitutional arrangements, so if should independence happen, yeah. then the UK government would argue that, in fact, there's, that's a, that makes that's a different system. You, you know, the UK has lost a lot of its tax base, and then yeah. the... the um, Responsibility for paying that will come from the Scottish government. So that therein lies the sort of debate uh, right. between the two sides. But the key question here is in the, in the fact that the, that you were checking is not necessarily what will happen after independence. It's what mm. the Secretary of the Treasury said, and, and whether it was yeah. confirmed at that point in 2014 that people w- will have the right to that pension regardless of independence. As you say, we're not really fact-checking exactly what would happen if, after independence because one thing that if you've listened to this podcast before and you know anything about us is that fact-checkers cannot fact-check the future. That is right. one of our big things to, to avoid doing. So what we can say is what we think is you know, quite likely to happen at, um, upon independence and it appears based on the, two, the positions of the two sides that there's likely to be a level of negotiation over who pays pensions and you know whose responsibility it is. Yeah. Um, so it's certainly not confirmed, as yes. uh, Ian Blackford seems to claim. Yeah. Um, he said that the, this has been confirmed by the Chief Secretary of the Treasury at the time of the referendum. That at that time, the Chief Secretary of the Treasury was Danny Alexander, who's a Scottish was a Scottish Lib Dem MP and part of the uh, coalition government from 2010 to 2015. We yeah. found no mention of him confirming that responsibility in our sifting through like his public statements yeah so we think that what's probably happened is uh ian blackford's got a bit mixed up between the chief secretary of the treasury and the then pensions minister right um because in a scottish affairs committee session in 2014 before the referendum uh he said quote you do not have to be a uk citizen to get a uk pension so we will obviously for the people who put national insurance into our system we will pay them a pension wherever they live so that seems to sort of back up what Ian blackford's saying Right, right. Um, but he also says what happens post-separation will be a matter for the Scottish government. And the split of funding for those who have yeah. built up an entitlement was a matter of negotiation. So it's not quite as straightforward as Ian Black seems to, have, seems to have kind of selectively quoted from that. Okay. Um, and he, in a statement which he sent to the committee in written evidence, he said, I would think the Scottish people would expect their government to take full responsibility for paying pensions to people in Scotland, including where liabilities had arisen before independence. Similarly, people for the rest of the UK would not expect them to guarantee or underwrite the pensions of those living in what would then be a separate country. Right. So 
it seems it seems to an extent that he was referring to in that uh, quote, the original quote about uh, the liabilities. He was sort of referring to a situation like they have people who are in the UK who work in the UK and then move to France, for example, move to Spain. Sure. They continue to get their their pensions paid no matter where they live. Yeah. But the position of the UK government at the moment is that they'd likely argue that independence is, isn't the same as somebody. It's not the same as somebody who in the UK then moving to France while the UK is still existent as it is. Yeah. But that if there is Scottish independence, that's a kind of massive constitutional change that right. can't really be compared to the how like, individuals are currently treated, uh, you know, yeah. in, in current state pension policy. Because for one, if the UK breaks up, then the, the UK loses a massive part of its tax base and that will be transferred to Scotland. There will have to be some level of negotiation. Yeah. And that's not us fact-checking the future, just to be clear. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it seems very likely that they're the current positions are that there will be some level of negotiation over it and it's not as ian blackford suggested confirmed what was the verdict about whether the statement is true or not we went with false so ian blackford said that chief secretary to the treasury confirmed that those who paid national insurance were in the uk they would be the responsibility of the uk government after independence the chief secretary of the treasury didn't say that um, a similar statement was made by the pensions minister, Steve Webb, but has been selectively quoted. Um, and, you know, Ian Black were not mentioning that about the split of funding and the negotiation positions, which um, Steve Webb actually did mention in the um, session and uh, ongoing evidence. So we ended up saying that it was false. Now it's time for our interview with Andy Dudfield from uh, Full Fact. Me and Sam spoke to him about how AI fact-checking works, how it helps uh, fact-checkers. We also talked about the limitations of it, what they expect can come from it, and also uh, you know, how fact-checking works in different ways around the world. We're back after the interview and we'll do a podcast-exclusive uh, fact-check here uh, on the FFS show. So we'll see you after. Obviously, uh, listeners to this podcast will know of our work and they'll know, uh, I'm sure they'll know Full, full Fact, a uh, big name in the world fact-checking scene, uh, but they probably won't really know what automated fact-checking is. So first off, could you just give us a sort of quick primer as, as to what it is and why it's a focus? So the first thing we're interested in is trying to identify the right stuff to fact check and that's mm. the most important thing that we can fact check each day and that's really important because there aren't that many fact checks ever written let's say less than two hundred thousand fact checks ever written by all fact checkers around the world in the right. last 10 years that's not very many when you look at like the size mm. of the web where there's billions of things out there and so making sure that every time we write a fact check it is the most important thing that we can be checking as a really important part of the process. Right. And it's also what technology is quite good at. Technology is really good at sorting information, you know, classifying stuff, putting it into neat orders. Mm. And so we try to make sure that we can identify information by monitoring, in our instance, the UK media landscape. So we take content from social media, from newspaper websites, from uh TV and from radio, so we transcribe stuff, we get it into text, and we have this big old pipeline of information that's coming to us, which is what everybody is saying. 
And then we can use some artificial intelligence, uh, which makes it sound like a very exciting thing. We can use <laughs> some good technology, some sensible technology yeah. to work our way through all of those statements and find where people are making claims. So where people are saying stuff that is about the world. And then we can start to classify that content a little bit further. So we can work out where people are saying something that is a prediction or saying something that's a personal opinion or talking about their voting record, or perhaps most interestingly, talking about numbers, because that's that's a good example, right? So if you've got all of the information everybody's saying, you find the claims, you find the claims where someone's saying a number. If someone's making a claim with a number in it, there's probably some sort of substantial evidence behind it. Right. So we do that, and then we start to add a little bit of extra content to it, so we'll work out who's said it. So um, we'd be able to identify if it's a politician that said it, if so who it is, which party they might be a member of. And we can then give our fact checkers that nicely organized view of the information. And that's the really key thing here is that we're, I think, automated fact checking technology is here to help fact checkers. What are the limitations of it, though? Oh, many. Okay. I think uh, <laughs> I think definitely that the point it's making around language is really difficult to get computers to understand right. everything. Like language is inherently a difficult thing and people are brilliant at just like mutually understanding what they mean by things. So just like all of that kind of stuff is really difficult to codify. Um, and also one of the big challenges in this is the access to good information. So when you're trying to like speed up the process of fact checking, one of the things you might want to start to do is trying to um, automate little parts of it. So if someone was to say unemployment is rising or falling by 4%, that we know what unemployment means in the UK. We know that the Office for National Statistics publishes labour market information. We know we can go there. And we know that the way that the Office for National Statistics publish stuff is in such a way that uh, you can go on and look at a spreadsheet on their website, or if you're yeah. particularly minded and like a nerd like uh, me over here, you can like you can do that programmatically. Like you can ask sure. automatically ask, okay, what's the level of unemployment? And I can get that information back. And so, in close to real time, in theory, I can say, okay, if you've said unemployment is rising by four percent, I can go away to ONS, check that information, come back and say, okay, right, that's that seems to be in line with what ONS is saying. Mm -hmm. But the challenge there is. ONS is a small part of the information ecosystem, and they're one of the few people who are publishing really good information like this. And so to really, really start to scale some of this stuff, you're going to need lots more people to publish really good information. How does this, could this uh, AI and this, like, we can say, like, technology supporting mm -hmm. fact checking be used in order to fact check claims that come from other parts of the world? One of the really pesky things about misinformation that we've all seen is it seldom sticks to nice, neat geographical borders and that mm -hmm. the web doesn't quite work like that. You know, Information can flow right. anywhere. Fact-checking in every country is different. Misinformation yeah. in every country is different. And so there's no universal one-size-fits-all misinfo mm -hmm. thing. You know, stuff looks different. Media landscapes are different. Formats are different. You know, people, things will come from different places. And also languages are different as well. And so we've been, we've been doing some work to try and see if we can generalize processes. And that's been, that's been reasonably successful, I think, about um, uh, in the last six months or so. I think it's 25% of the fact checks that have been written by Africa Check have been identified by AI that was produced um, by us. And so that's you know, yeah. gratifying to see this kind of stuff having real world totally. impacts. But it's also just seeing that kind of spread of information moving around. It's 
uh, one of the, the big things in, I suppose, the fact checking is um, how content integrates into other platforms. And so, you know, you'll see this all the time with your work as well about making sure that it plays nicely in Facebook or making sure that it's seen well in a Google search result or making sure that it's seen in that kind of YouTube interface. You know, a lot of the platforms have these different ways of making sure that fact checks can be inserted by, by a significant distance. The work of full fact is seen on other people's platforms more than it's seen on like on our own website. We have a really, like super proud, healthy number of people coming to our website, but that is tiny in comparison relative to the people seeing it on other platforms. And I think that's one of the big success stories of technology and fact checking is that, you know, we got our act together and decided, okay, let's define what a fact check looks like. Again, it's that kind of boring stuff, but I don't know. It's like a vending machine and like a vending machine knows like what size a fizzy pop can is. Like we all know like what one of those looks like. And so platforms need to know what a fact check looks like. And we decided yeah. it looks like this. It's got a claim, a conclusion, someone said it in a place. And just doing that meant that platforms could say, okay, fact checks mean something. This content is different to other content and we can show it in a different way. I mean, just personally, I rarely go to a website anymore. You mm-hmm. know, like I, so often it's uh, through a social media, through an email, yeah, through something, yeah. you know, and through Slack or whatever it is. Um, I want to touch a little bit on the on the internet plumbing thing <laughs> that, you, that you talked about. So I'm from Brazil, and a lot of the misinformation things that I get from aunties and, and family over there comes from WhatsApp mm. shares, um, which are so weird to me, like that that someone sent a WhatsApp message to someone and then it just snowballed mm-hmm. into like hundreds of people mm. later, you know. Um, what What does it look like to do this type of work in the many different platforms of social media and communication that you can find? Like what's... What's more difficult to follow? How how do you do it? Sure, I think that I mean that's a that's a super good question. Some things are easier than others, right? So finding some information on a, a well known website that's quite easy to get to. When you start getting into closed messaging kind of things, they, yeah. by design, a lot of that stuff is harder to get to, right? You know, WhatsApp is encrypted, and that's that's yeah. an important part of what their product is. Yeah. Um, and we see some stuff from that. The full fact, like uh, a bunch of fact checkers, has a tip line. So we have a WhatsApp number that people can send stuff to and we can get right. a sense of what's going on in there. And I think it's it's certainly from speaking to fact checkers around the world, it's noticeable that you get like slightly different profiles of misinformation on different platforms. The kind of stuff that spins yeah. around in WhatsApp could be different to the kind of stuff that comes from Facebook, which will yeah. be different to the kind of stuff that may come from Reddit or what have you. And it's I don't think it's a it's not an easy thing to quantify or classify. The stuff is a very organic kind of world, but certainly yeah. I think we can we can check for some places and a lot of our work in full fact is around accountability. You know, this kind of idea that bad information ruins lives, uh, damages people's health, but it hurts democracy and that kind of right. holding those mm-hmm. in power to account means that a lot of the time the media we're looking at is quite mainstream. But I think, yeah, absolutely right. In different countries, um, speaking to folks in India, for example, like uh-huh. WhatsApp is like, is the internet to an extent, and that has a big difference in the way the information moves around. What an interesting chat. I was fascinated to hear about the different like platforms and the impact of WhatsApp, which doesn't seem so big right now in the uk but like growing for sure in terms of misinformation and all of that so yeah really good to hear about that 
Um, now we move on to our final segment on the show, which is where um, I bring you a kind of crowdsourced sort of fact check uh, thing. This week we have two crowdsourced fact checks. We have the one from the beginning of the show, and we have one right now. Um, mm. And given that it was Valentine's Day just a couple of days ago from when this podcast comes out, uh, I have a bit of a Valentine's Day fact check for you. Now, this has been all over Twitter, all over people's posts online, and it happens every year, is the claim that Valentine's Day is a you know a concept or an idea invented by uh, card and gifting companies. Yeah. One tweet that I'm reading here says... Valentine's Day is a nonsense concept started by card and gifting companies to fill the post-Christmas gap. Totally unrelated. Has anyone got a spare bed for me for the next few days? So a lot of a lot of that kind of chat going on around Valentine's Day. And I thought I would ask you, Ali, is it true? Valentine's Day obviously was not started by Hallmark or one of the big uh, card companies. It has quite a long history. Yeah. Um, quite some of the origins of it are fairly unclear, but the... I mean, obviously, there's a link between the, the Valentine's Day comes from Saint Valentine, or sure. you know, Saint Valentinus, or what their various different names. The Catholic Church recognizes at least three different saints called Valentine or okay. Valentinus. They were all martyred. Right. Um, so the for various different uh, inf- alleged infractions, but the yeah. all these the kind of legends around these different saints emphasize his appeal as a kind of sympathetic hero. And also quite a romantic figure. So you can see now that there's a kind of link being drawn. Right, right. Um, St. Valentine became a sort of popular saint um, in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, but some people think that Valentine's Day, as in the celebration in the middle of February, uh, was to commemorate the anniversary of St. Valentine's death or burial. Um uh-huh. Other people think it's linked to a Roman festival called Lupercalia. Um, please get in touch if I'm pronouncing that wrong, um, which was held in mid-February. And they think that it's possible that the um, the church was trying to sort of Christianize that festival by putting Valentine's Day feast in the same area, in the same place. Oh, I see. Um, there's right. loads of different kind of competing people. A lot of people think are different, have different views on where the fest, how the festival developed. But that's sure. just a couple of the ways in which people think it had. Yeah. Um, Lupercalia was banned in the fifth century, uh, but and some people think that's when Valentine's Day, as we know it now, kind of replaced it. But it didn't really become something that people saw as a sort of love-related festival until about the fourteenth century. Okay. Um, there's a poem by Chaucer, which is one of the early, earliest, uh, if not the earliest, record of Saint Valentine's Day as a day of kind of romantic celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, and it appears that kind of formal messages or what people call valentines started appearing in the 1500s okay so and then by the late 1700s there was commercial cards being printed uh, an interesting aside uh, is in the victorian era there were these there was things called um vinegar valentines which ah. were essentially for people who if you got a valentine's card or you're being pursued by somebody you didn't like uh-huh. <laughs> you could send them a valentine it was more popular to send these valentines and there's there's, there's like a repellent almost <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it's, a, it's yeah. a stinging rebuke um <laughs> so there's an example of one which i've got here which um has a, a woman giving uh, with a lemon uh kind of giving a lemon to a 
one of her suitors. And it says, To my Valentine, tis a lemon that I hand you and bid you now skidoo, because I love another, there is no chance for you. Which is, is brutal stuff. Wow, that's one does not recover from that. Biggest dinghy ever. Historically rejected. Oh my god. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Hallmark started, according to their website, started selling uh, Valentine's cards in 1913 and started mass producing them in 1916. So obviously throughout the 20th century and 21st century, that's increased and undoubtedly uh, card companies and and gift companies, etc. have seen this as as a a way to make some some money, uh, particularly after Christmas. So, you know, it's obviously expanded and become more commercialized. Yeah. But they were, you know, they were reflecting a real existing tradition wow that's that's brilliant well i uh that's another edition of uh busting popular myths by your favorite vinegar valentines uh, from the <laughs> ffs show yeah that should be like the title of this episode, oh my god valentines. i'm so right. i'm gonna make t-shirts i'm gonna make t-shirts That's all we've got time for for this episode of the FFS show. Thank you to Andy Dudfield for his uh, really interesting interview about AI and kind of there's a lot of hopefully future applications that could help us in our work and help to sort of help stop misinformation. And if you you want to be part of our work of fact checking and finding finding claims online that we need to look through, uh, you can help us. Remember by filling out a very short form on checkmyfact.paperform.co, where you can suggest uh, uh, claims and other things for us to check. And you can just get in touch with us on social media at social.theferret.scot, where you can find all our handles and, and website and emails and all sorts of things. So. Also remember that you can email us, factcheck at ferret.scot, if you've got any queries, any suggestions, anything you want to talk to us about. And remember to keep your eyes open for facts and keep your brain active for checking them and keep your heart open because it's Valentine's Day almost. That's so derivative. I love it. (laughs) We will see you next time for more of this absolute waffling nonsense. (laughs) Bye. Bye.